Welcome to Ground Up, a podcast about propelling entrepreneurship in Uganda. Brought to you by UEEI, the Uganda Entrepreneurial Ecosystem Initiative. I'm your host, Hamna Makacho. And I'm your host, Faye Kakai. Tune in every Monday for engaging one-on-one discussions. We'll be talking to a variety of entrepreneurs, support organizations, as well as hosting solution panels tackling specific topics on the ecosystem in Uganda. Welcome to Ground Up. Today we're talking to an ecosystem actor from Bid Capital Partners. We have Mark Mutahi in the studio representing the firm. He'll introduce himself shortly. Uh, just to remind you, if you're not subscribed to Ground Up, do subscribe such that you don't miss a single episode. Welcome, Mark. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning, guys. Good morning. morning. How are you doing? Good. Good. How are you? I'm great. How very good. Very good. Thanks for uh, gracing us with your presence. Uh, very important people. You're welcome. We're very excited. The pleasure is all mine. Yeah. So, Mark, could you start by telling us about yourself? Who is Mark Mutahi? Okay. So, um, as she says, I'm Mark Mutahi. I'm a managing partner at Bid Capital Partners. I've been with the organization now about three years, this December. Uh, personally, um, I'm a Ugandan, born and raised here, Munyankole by tribe. Uh, my background is, uh, I'm a Namliango old boy, six years. Uh, after which, uh, education-wise, I have a, a bachelor's in economics and stats. My master's is in, I have an MBA. Professionally, I um, started my career in banking, retail and wealth management, after which I did a few years in operations. Then I transitioned out of that into entrepreneurship. Myself and a few partners based out of the U.S. Uh, have a climate finance business. Um, did that for a few years, then moved on to another social enterprise doing uh, franchising, um, water distribution. And those two businesses was involved in the capital raising portion after which I moved on to Bid Capital Partners where I am today. Yeah, awesome. So could you tell us about uh, Bid Capital Partners? What exactly does the firm do? So Bid Capital Partners, we call ourselves BidCP internally. Uh, Bid Capital Partners, we're an impact investment advisory firm. So... Just to clarify, we're an advisory firm, meaning we don't have money. A lot of people think we're, <laughs> think we're a fund. We're not a fund. We support businesses that are trying to raise capital. So our role is, um, you know, working with entrepreneurs that are looking to raise private funding, mm-hmm. specifically. M- majority of the time, you see a lot of a lot of businesses have experience with commercial capital. They know how to put the banks. They know the requirements. They have that. You know, they know that story. But in this region, you don't see people that have been raising either private equity or private debt. Okay. Okay. So um, our role is to help along that process. We have a wide network of investors that we work with. Sometimes we get involved on the buy side of the transaction where investors will come to us seeking very specific type of deals, either specific sectors, specific deal sizes. And our role is to go and find those businesses for them. Oh, great. So you described yourselves as an impact investment advisory firm. Could you tell our listeners um, what impact investment is? What exactly is that? Yeah, so there, I think there's two there's two important words there. There's impact and investment, mm. and uh, impact is is pretty broad, especially in this space, mm. uh, in this region. So I'd say impact is anything that provides you know a measurable, sustainable societal impact, so societal benefit. So it could be anything from you know girl child empowerment, environment, education, healthcare. So it's fairly broad, mm. but the investment piece has to have a return. Mm-hmm. So when we say impact investment, we mean businesses that can provide that benefit, but also provide a financial return to whoever finances these businesses. That's a pretty clear definition. So there seems to be a movement around um, impact 
um, with uh, some some entrepreneurs or some businesses feeling like or claiming that it's only businesses that fit within that definition that are able to access financing. And if you're not an impact business, um, by definition, you can't access financing. So to what extent do you think this is true? What has your experience been? It, it, it all depends. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, at sort of at a meta level, there's what is called the IFC exclusion list. So these are businesses that have been proven to have a negative benefit against society. So things like extractive mining, mm. pornography, yeah. um, alcohol, tobacco, to a certain extent, real estate because of displacement issues in some places. So those sort of businesses have been deemed by the World Bank IFC to have a negative benefit. So those are negative, impactful companies, I guess, right? Mm. Now, anything outside of that, I'm more positive. Now, to your question about those specific types of businesses raising more money, I think globally there's sort of a rise in social consciousness. And so where investment is coming from has flipped to say, can we make money but at the same time benefit society? Mm. That was in the mindset in the past. So in the past, you know, the days when even um, you could smoke on an airplane, right? Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, the, the mindset, I think, just globally has changed. So where investment is coming from, especially the fact that it's coming from old money based out of Europe, is saying, okay, we've done all these things already. Now with the developing countries, how do we help them grow, but at the same time minimize the impact to the world of the investments that we're making? So it is true that there is more impact capital out there. Mm-hmm. Um, now when, it bring, when you bring it back home, the problem though is the mistake now is is making impact enterprises look like social enterprises slash NGOs slash. Well, what's the distinction though? Um, say between an impact uh, venture versus a social venture. So, so in my mind, profit drives impact, right? Okay. Meaning, the impact venture is doesn't exist exclusively for the purpose of supporting the community. It's going to make money, which will support the community, right? Now, a social venture is impact fast. So, and that's where, you know, you get the NGOs or you get the not-for-profits, those organizations that exist primarily to help. Now, an impact venture exists such that its existence makes help possible. Does that make make sense? Mm -hmm. So there's impact fast and there's profit fast. So for an impact venture, profit will drive the impact. Okay. So all the decisions we'll make will be hardcore business decisions that make sense from a business standpoint, such that we can be sustainable enough to create the positive influence society. Now, the other way around, you have the social enterprises, which could exist primarily to provide that impact fast, to the extent that they don't have to be money-making, the type of capital attract is different, the expectations are different, and that feeds into everything else. The type of teams they have are different, the type of um, skills at the table are different, right? So the difference comes from what leads. Is it profit or is it impact? Yeah, so I think, the discussion around uh, that whole piece around um, accessing finance is most of the money that's available uh, locally is more is from impact funds, right? And um, there's there's something about the definition of impact. Say, so you'll find uh, certain businesses. Uh, I'll give one, like for example, entertainment, right? Okay. Uh, entertainment is not thought about as uh, an impact sort of. Um, 
uh, industry. But if you think about, um, let's say, uh, you know, a concert, right? Uh, it's not just the artist who gets, you know, these benefits. He has his gig men. Uh, when mm-hmm. you throw a concert, you have, you know, the laborers who come put up the, you know, the trussing. He has all these other service providers who bring, you know, backline, all that stuff. And all those basically are feeding off this one thing. But when it comes to you know, raising money from the environment we're in, you'll find that uh, not many people are looking at, you know, it's, it's very hard for, uh, for uh, an entertainment sort of startup uh, to, 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 to make that kind of money. So I guess the question is, is the definition of impact a bit restrictive when it comes to uh, what these funds can actually invest in or... Is it no, a misconception? No, I think I think it's, it's not the definition that's restrictive. It's the it's the it's the understanding of it that's very subjective. That's the problem. Mm-hmm. So everyone has their own dis- d- definition, right? So for the example you've given, there's entertainment space. If you're doing concerts and things like that, I think it's really upon you as the entrepreneur who's running those concerts to be able to tell that impact narrative from the beginning. The problem is people follow finance, right? So when you when there's impact funding on the table, all of a sudden they try to spin the story to fit what the investor is talking about, right? Which is challenging at the, at the start. But also, there's a problem on the investor side. So on a, a very live example that happened with us, working with a business in Rwanda that supports smallholder farmers, and the investor pulled away simply because one of the farmers had an iPhone. Wow. So, they, so they said, we don't think the target population fits our definition of poverty because we're trying to get people out. So you know, if somebody in the rural farms in Rwanda has an iPhone, I, we don't think this is really what we're looking to invest in. So again, that's that, that's that investor's perception, right? So that yeah. definition, unfortunately, is not standardized and everybody sort of sees it from their own lens. And that's sort of where, that's also, frankly, where it's important to figure out how to tell your story depending on who you're telling, who you're talking to. Because mm-hmm. you're right, the, the kind of employment that a concert will provide, potentially, the gig men you're talking about, uh, can do a lot more than the alternatives out there. It's just yeah. that now, the concert, the concert people have figured a way to tell that story yeah. in a way that makes sense. Yeah, and from the beginning, as from the beginning. trying to adjust exactly. according to where the money is, like you've said. Let's take a step back a bit and uh, go back to the the whole, I guess. SME sort of sector, which is, I, I don't know if that's primarily what you support. Yes. Okay. So then the question becomes why SMEs? Why, why, why do you think that's uh, an important, an important sector to support? Well, a few things. One of them is just the demographics of our country, right? Which I've been spoken about many times uh, yeah. in terms of the number of SMEs, the inability to find formal employment with the traditional big businesses and just the age of the population. But also, this is a trend that's happening worldwide. Uh, development, and more in this region actually, will not be done by government. Government has shifting priorities. Government has corruption, bureaucracy. They have their own issues. So the, the thinking is more and more development is going to come from the private sector. Now, the private sector, if you look at it even at the larger scale, a big business is simply a small business with systems. It's the same thing. So. So what's the intervention point? There's all these new small businesses coming up and, you know, the statistics support how many they are and how many, they, how much they contribute to the economy. But who's helping those people to grow into those big, those big businesses that meet their ambitions? So that's why we play in that space specifically is because of the opportunity based on the demographics, population size, population age, and the direction in which private sector is continuing to contribute to development in this region. So. Yeah. Yeah, we do believe that that's where, you know, if somebody is forward thinking, that's the kind of space you want to play now, such that those are the same businesses whose journey you'll walk, you'll help them raise capital today, 
they'll, they'll be doing their seed round later on they're doing their series a then they're doing you know they're doing their buyout and all those things so you sort of grow with those businesses okay so it, it's important uh, it's interesting that you, you you mentioned growth so obviously you're in the business of supporting these smes um and i think uh whatever the business is be it advisory be it you know a startup or you know goes through some phases right and changes uh, just walk us through bit capital partners how how did you guys start i guess you saw a particular gap that you decided to fill uh so how did you go about you know um getting started and 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 uh just walk us through the journey till where you are today and what how exactly you you have morphed so actually our our business is fairly old you'd say we're almost about maybe 14 years old now mm-hmm. so we started out back in 2006 now we're founded out of the Netherlands. Today we have a presence in the Netherlands, in Mombasa, here in Uganda, and an office in Rwanda. So we started out as a platform. It was actually called Bidex. And the thinking so Bid is business and development. Mm. So the thinking at the time was similar to VC4A. You had um, a platform that would match entrepreneurs to investors. So the business model was such that, you know, you can pay some sort of subscription fee we put up a profile of investors profile of entrepreneurs and then the two um, you know we match make them based on an algorithm happening in the background either based on sector of interest uh, deal size and things like that uh in that process though we learned a lot about where the gaps are there's a lot of assumptions that were made at the time in terms of uh how such a platform would be useful but the biggest challenge was that entrepreneurs were not and I'll speak to about investment ready down the line but a lot of a lot of businesses were not able to attract private money there just wasn't enough experience in that space yeah and we're doing a lot of work while doing work here in East Africa doing work in Peru Jordan very many places but the narrative was the same which was you know an investor was so for example back to the impact question you just asked if you're trying to attract impact capital it might make sense to register your business sort of as a not for profit if you want to do that you will go register at the registration bureau limited by guarantee as a social venture you mean yes okay as opposed to limited by shares Two years down the road you want to bring on an equity partner by virtue of the registration you have there's no shares to give away yeah but this is something you didn't know you weren't thinking about at the time so much as you might have an equity investor on the table extra interested in your business just the structure of the business doesn't allow you to attract that kind of money but there was just a lot of inexperience and knowledge about how these things work So we ended up getting um, two things happen. One, we set up a foundation to support that process. As a foundation, we're able to attract grant financing. So we're funded by the Dutch government for many years and many other sources. But we're able to do really heavily subsidized work um in the region, primarily supporting businesses in their business development services, but with a lens towards financing. So not typically your market research or your operation strategy and things like that. Specifically to support you to get ready for finance. So we did that for many years. Um so we're governed by a supervisory board because we're operating as a foundation. Frankly the Bidex platform sort of fell to the wayside. So we put that aside and we just maintained the foundation that kept doing this work for many years. After a while, um there was just an internal change in thought process. Operating as a foundation comes with its own challenges. After the time you you're raising financing the other time you you know you're reporting uh but also our supervisory board had been governing us for 10 years and they sort of got to a point which was okay what's happening next uh so internally there was a sit down to say what's the future of this business 
you know, we're working with entrepreneurs and preaching sustainability. How we sustain how we ourselves. sustain ourselves, yeah. Right. Um, so we sat down and said, okay. Uh, so new, new partners came on board. That's when I joined, and the thinking was, is there a business where you can actually work with entrepreneurs, get them to pay a fee that makes the business sustainable and help them raise money? A full advisory firm. In the process, though, the timing, we're very fortunate that more and more of the donor partners started getting more involved in private sector development. But these donor partners, so the USAIDs, the DFIDs, those type of people, most of their background is in uh, development, uh, livelihoods, and things like that. So the realization that, you know, we want to support private sector, but we don't know how to do it, we ended up getting involved in multi-year contracts with them, where the client sort of now becomes USAID. And they're saying, you know, we'll pay you to go support Harm and his team to do ABCD. Um, so that became a business line of its own, which is, you know, you know, it's fairly important work and it is, uh, it allows us to continue to build our brand. But at the same time, we're also saying, you know, how can we figure out a way to work with these entrepreneurs and actually fix the problems that we've seen through all these 10 years of doing the foundation type of work. And one of the things which, which I'll speak to, which is into our future is the potential to also raise a fund and do that. So as we went through that transition, went from BIDEX to bid network foundation and then the latest transition which is maintain the bid name and now we're bid capital partners which represents the um increase i guess in service offerings so now as opposed to the past we would work with really early stage businesses and help you think through your bds business development services towards financing now we can do other things including you know working with these multi-year contracts doing valuations supporting you through your deal structuring and all that. So we changed our team internally. We brought in house resources that could actually support the growth of the business. And that's where we are today. Okay. So it seems like um, that whole model where you are basically uh, getting those multi-year contracts with, with the development partners seems to be the prevalent mode of survival for a lot of BDS type farms. Speak to sustainability of that kind of model and 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 how do we begin to not have that as the primary model uh, for, for, for BDS uh, type entities? Yeah, well, I think sustainability, yes, of course, there's always a risk with sustainability when you're dealing with these sort of programs, right? Because every, you know, they run for five years and after that there's another program coming up and things like that, so there's a worry. But indeed, if, you know, if the program runs out and we don't have a follow-on program, what happens? But I guess that's what that allows you to do is build expertise in other things. I think the real challenge with BDS providers in this space has been that the truth is one of many of the businesses that we work with don't have the ability to afford the market rate for the services they need. And that's just the truth of the matter. So the question comes in to say, you know, we want to do this work. Uh, the skills under the table, even just in-house, the kind of staff that you want to recruit, are these small SMEs able to, you know, pay advisory fees that line up with what they with what they are what they require? And it's difficult. Yep. And so eventually, what happens is you either find you, with BDS you get what you pay for. Unfortunately, much as to your point, there's a worry about sustainability. It does allow you though to sort of validate your existence because within that time you're able to continue to work with certain businesses. And I think there's sort of, again, a, raise, a rise in awareness of the value of these services because yeah. unfortunately, in the absence of that, it becomes very challenging. The way the model is built is majority of businesses are willing to pay for advisory services on a sort of no cure, no pay. So if, if you raise money, then I'll pay you. If you don't, it doesn't work. And yeah. so, but now the, the, the realization is that that doesn't quite work out yeah. because our incentives are not aligned. 
you know so that model has its own risks of of not being sustainable but at least it gives you time and allows you to build out models which make sense okay. and that's sort of what we're trying to do so walk us through the model right now so you've gone through all those phases you're now at the uh, I don't know if it's traditional advisory, <laughs> financial advisory, or transaction advisory firm. Walk us through your process. How does this work? What does the engagement with, 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 with your clients uh, look like? What's the model? Yeah, so, so, the, so there's two ways. One, uh, at the intake stage, there's either outbound clients that we go and, you know, we meet clients through referrals, through partner organizations, through networks, and so many other things. But those are people who walk in. Mm. We have a lot of walk-ins, uh, which is also interesting because many people walking knowing us from the past. Yeah, it's like yeah, well, we can do that, but don't really do that anymore. Yeah, uh, so it's, it's an interesting transition. But um, either way, once the client has been identified, we have um, we have an intake process where we ha- we do what we call an IRS. An IRS is uh, in an investment readiness scan, and the purpose of that is for us to build out a scope of work for you. So so people walk in and say, hey. I, I you know I do X type of business. I'm looking for a million dollars. We need to validate that even prior to a discussion around contracting and anything like that. So what we do is we'll give you an NDA, which you'll sign to govern the confidentiality of information we'll share. Then you'll share a bunch of information with us and our team will go through that. It's a very detailed process, but the purpose is for us to understand where you at sort of on this continuum of raising money because many businesses don't have the experience. Now, those with experience are easier because a lot of people assume investment readiness is having a pitch deck ready and having, you know, investor-facing materials. But there's a, there's a real question of, okay, how much do you need? How much can you afford? How does the money move in? Uh, what sort of money is it? What's the money going to be used for? Is it debt? Is it equity? Is it a hybrid solution? Is it something in between? Uh, and these are things just many companies have never experienced unless you've done it before. Now, based on our understanding of where you're at in that process, that will guide the scope of work. So, for example, if we have to, if it makes sense to get an equity investor, when need evaluation. Do you have an independent valuation done? Have you done it before? Um, a lot of businesses don't have CFO skills. They have bookkeepers, they have accountants, but they don't have CFOs. So, sort of that strategic financial advice doesn't exist. So, it's like, okay, we need to educate you on that process. Um, if they do, it's, you know, it's, of course, quicker. So that guides our scope of work. Now that scope of work will determine what we're going to do upfront for you. Now, then that will guide our engagement. So as we do, as we walk through the contracting, we'll say, okay, we'll agree with you as an entrepreneur that you know these are the things we need to do for you, and, yep. here's, and here's why. And then following that, we get into a contract, and then start to work on all those materials. When they're ready, we get you in front of investors. We start to have those investor discussions. That's sort of a very iterative process. The more investors we talk to, the more we learn about general feedback. We take that feedback, we make adjustments. Sometimes it's these projections are not, that don't, they're either too ambitious and things like that. In-house, we do an exercise called an investor mapping where we'll sit down and say, you know, just off the top of our heads and the other networks we have, can we identify five people we think would be interested in this transaction? This is prior to contracting. Um, if we think the deal will sell and we think we can work with you in, you know, in the amount of time that you have, this is another thing. Most investors start, most entrepreneurs start looking for money today and they need it tomorrow. And it's too late, yeah. Yeah. Um, then we get into the contract. Then, uh, then, you know, that work will continue as we talk to investors and hopefully we get to a term sheet. Then we we'll work with you to work on the terms, you know, what's on the table. Um, we do the deal structuring and the negotiation and all that. Eventually we get to the financial cost. It sounds like it would make for very interesting conversations because uh, having sat on the other side, yeah. uh, we come in with uh, 
you know, we are very ambitious people as, as entrepreneurs, uh, you know, strongly believe in what you're doing. And then a one Mark Mutai comes <laughs> and says, boss, <laughs> your thing is not scalable or whatever. So, so what sort of, what have you learned along the way dealing, you know, with, with in the process, um, uh, as you do right now, what, what have the interesting observations you've come to, uh, with regard to, uh, entrepreneurs? <laughs> there, are, there are many, uh, first of all, it depends on sector. Entrepreneurs in the fintech space, uh, majority of times, are too ambitious. Everybody sees themselves as the next Facebook. Everybody sees themselves as the next, you know, cheaper cash or whoever it is. Yeah, they're very ambitious. So many, many times they come in, and as we go through the numbers, um, there's a figure in their head: my, my business is worth ten million dollars. I'm looking for a million dollars, and da 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 da. And you know, you go through the projections, and you're like, okay, right now you're selling. I don't know, 200 widgets. The projection says you're going to sell 2,000 in three months, fine. But there's no allocation for a sales and marketing team or budget. Yeah, what's going to drive that? Well, how, who's going to sell these things? Yeah. And there's just this mindset that's just going to grow organically and it's just going to go viral. And it's like, well, yes, it could, but majority of times it's probably not, right? Then there's also the question of how much do you really need? You know, unfortunately, and this I come back to BDS and accelerators, incubators, uh, have made people think that a million dollars is not a lot of money. A million dollars is a lot of money in Uganda. Yeah. This is 3.7 billion shillings. Yeah. It's not easy money to spend. So everybody talks about a million as a minimum. Uh, we need two million. Like, how are you going to spend two million shillings? If salaries are two, two, two million UGX. How are you going to spend two million dollars, right? So what you find, again, fintech, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, um, ambition about what the business can become. That's the fintech space. Ambition is good. Maybe you're saying ambition that's not, uh, that's lacking some, okay, that's not really grounded. grounded. Okay. Yeah, right? So it's it's too ambitious for the stage they're at. Okay. Then also, there's a lot of, uh, another learning is a lot of entrepreneurs are raising money too early mm. because that's the language of, especially again in the tech space. You know, very quickly as the product is being developed, everyone is wants to talk to a VC and wants to talk to a PE farm and wants to talk to all these people. And it's like, well, the, the product's not really validated yet. How many customers do you have? How many are paying? You know, what? You, how far have you gone along this journey? Just an, But you see, again, in Silicon Valley, an idea is worth millions. So there's a lot of borrowed concepts that are not contextual to our market and saying, you know, no, but the company in Nigeria did this. Yeah, but that's Nigeria. It's a very different market from Uganda. So the learning is that, one, uh, is heightened ambition that's not grounded in reality. Number two, there's just a lack of knowledge, and this is a big one. Many, many, many entrepreneurs don't know how money works. You know, they know their product and they know this, but just the understanding of how investment capital works, the realization that this is earned money. If I invest in your business, I already worked for this money somewhere. There's a certain level of respect that comes with having my money, and there's a certain level of, of expectation that I, I have of you, which is valid. So you find, you know, that everyone, everyone's business is worth what it is, what it is in their minds, which is fine. But then when they're interfacing with investors, they are frustrated by the fact that the investor wants performance reports, the investor wants this and all that. But they forget that it's always going to be worth more to you than it is to me. But the same way, my money is going to be worth more to me than it is to you. So there's a huge lack of knowledge. And I think for me, that's the biggest learning is that we don't, we take for granted how complicated private finance space is and more and more work needs to be done to 
educate entrepreneurs. So as we are building our businesses and building our products and doing all these prototypes, there has to be a, a, the same amount of effort. You know, and, and you find that the businesses that have those skills, I mean, it doesn't have to be the entrepreneur or the founder. It could have, could be... Some advisors. Yeah, you need, you need financial advisory because what we do today is everybody has a lawyer, people have accountants, but they don't have financial advisors. And this is not just in business. This is also in personal finance. There's no, there's no business. So like I said, back in my life, I was, I was in wealth management, but that was my job to help people plan their personal finance. We don't have that as an industry here. And so it's the same thing in business. There's no financial advisors at the table. So when investors get, when entrepreneurs get investment offers, when they do all these things, they're talking to legal minds who are checking the box in terms of the legal language, but no one is really giving them advice on the financial implications of some of these things. Yeah, so I want to I want to speak a bit about access to finance now for SMEs, yeah, because there's been this expansion in microfinance. So you find the micro enterprises have access to money, and yet um, the SMEs are too large to access that money and too small for the banks, the traditional banks, and also too high risk for the banks. So there's now this term that has been coined. Um, where they refer to as the missing middle. What do you believe is actually driving this gap in financing for SMEs? Uh, I, I think there's multiple things. One, we, we, we lack long-term money in, in this country, and that's just a function of our capital markets. So, you know, deposits that are sitting in the bank are not there for long term. Our, our what is it, Uganda Stock Exchange is not fluid, it's not liquid. So there isn't any secondary market. If you want to go sh sell your shares in Stanbic Bank today, no one is going to buy them. Market doesn't exist. So there, there, isn't, there really isn't any long-term capital. So everybody is moving really quickly, uh, wanting to do short-term things. And as a result, the alternatives to make returns on short-term are very high. Mm -hmm. If you get into money lending, you can make a lot of money yeah. overnight. If you go buy T-bills, 30 days, 90 days, whatever it is, <laughs> 90 days, 60 days, you make money overnight. So to invest in a business that is going to provide you returns in seven years is very difficult. So in the absence of that, what happens is the early stage businesses can get money simply because even from the government sources, like you're saying, uh, and sometimes it's even from other sources, um, but also the values are good at that stage. You know, the business is small. I can, for next to nothing, I can take 50% ownership. You know, there's that. The other problem is we don't have local finances, which is a huge problem. If you look at any of the developed markets, there's a growth of angel investors who are locals who understand how these businesses work. They have the contacts, they have the context, they have the connections. They can do very many things for you. So for example, even, even our business is not funded locally. Yeah. But imagine if we had a local investor in bid capital partners. Well, besides myself, I guess. If we had local investors who know how to help us grow our business here, we don't have that. So that missing middle comes in because these businesses are not big enough for the banks. They're not small enough for these grant opportunities and they're sort of stuck in that space. And those are the companies that we want to work with yeah. because that's where true growth and true opportunity comes from. The companies that have, you know, 20 employees, they're opening up their second product line, they're opening up their third location. Those are the businesses that nobody is paying attention to. And unfortunately, and, and the truth is, you know, it is scale-ups versus startups. Those are, the, those, are, those are going to be the big businesses of the future. Fundamentally, our, our capital structure in this, business, in this country is, is disorganized. The people with money don't want to show they have the money based on where they found, where they got it. Mm -hmm. And then you also have, government has its own priorities as much as they also have a lot of money. Mm -hmm. So yes, that missing middle is true. And it's not just in Africa, it's not just in Uganda, it's, mm -hmm. you know, it's an Africa-wide issue. 
And yeah. Um, yeah, there's need to sort out that problem. Yeah, so these are the farms that you are primarily working with in terms of giving them the advice. But what challenges do you face now in terms of um, supporting them? And how do you help them actually address those challenges? Of course, the challenge, one of the big challenges we have is that we're sourcing money from abroad, right? Mm-hmm. So you have a mismatch between investor expectation and understanding of our businesses in Uganda work. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've had to really work with the businesses to button up themselves to be attractive to where the capital is coming from. Mm-hmm. And it's, sometimes it's very basic things. You know, we're working with a business and you find they don't even have employment contracts. Yeah. So, you know, we're giving them templates for that. They don't have an advisor. They don't, have a, they don't even have a board. So there's governance issues. So, you know, we, we recommend names of people we know within our networks and say, you know, put these people on your advisory board and, you know, let them support you to do A, B, C, D, and E. So it's really, we, we come from a place of what will give the investor comfort. Because at the end of the day, working for the entrepreneur, right? Um, what will give the investor comfort that if I put my money in this business, I'm going to get a return. It is well managed. If there are going to be challenges, which there will be, I trust that these entrepreneurs will be honest and open with me and we'll work through these challenges together. But the critical thing is whatever investment I'm putting in your business is based on growth. Mm -hmm. So can can we validate that this business is going to grow? One of the big things we do is build financial models. I have a very super qualified team that does financial modeling and projections. And their role is specifically that, is if we're going to talk to investors about this story, does it make sense? Is the market as big as we say? Can the business grow? Do we have the ingredients to deliver on these five-year projections that we are promising? Yeah. Um, and sometimes we don't, but we're open about that with investors and say, you know what, we need your money to, to go hire these company. experts yes, exactly. to allow us to do ABCD. But just the ability to prove potential, because that's the only time they get their money back. Dividends and things like that don't quite happen, but that they only get their money back either when, there's really three ways as an investor you get your money back. Either one, the money is called a management buyback. The management will buy back your shares X amount of years from today. Two, there'll be an M&A. Somebody will take over this business or, or merge and buy it out. Three, you'll either go IPO. But typically, you will not get a significant investment back from dividends, especially if it's an equity investment. Debt is different, you know, just pay back my loan. But so we have to be able to validate that one of those three events is going to happen.